Thanks so much for choosing our podcast. Before you start this episode, this is Kellen Erskine from the future. If you're listening to the book pile for the first time, I highly recommend starting on a later episode after we hit our stride. Some of my all-time favorites are when we cover the books The Hunger Games, 1984, and The Roasts of the Da Vinci Code, or any of the Twilight Roasts. If you're here because you already like the podcast and want to binge from the beginning, then thanks again. New episodes every Monday. Hey, everyone. Want to learn about creativity from one of the most successful creators of our day? Today's book is On Writing by Stephen King. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comedian, a husband, a father, but most importantly, a comedian. (laughs) But before I was a comic... I wrote funny stories, pretty much from the time I learned how to write. And I'm David Vance. I started writing at age nine with a story about elves. It went on for pages and pages, and then the last line was, it was a tough battle, but in the end, the elves died. Whether or not you prefer the horror genre, Stephen King is objectively a master of the craft of writing. Just like how I don't like country music, but I can still admit that Brad Paisley is a great guitarist. King has wonderful advice for writers and creators of any skill level, and it's all in this book, which is part autobiography, part handbook. And this is The Book Pile. What I'm trying to say is that Stephen King is the Brad Paisley of literature. (laughs) All right, and without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from On Writing. All right, lesson one, read a lot. So he starts out by saying, if you want to be a writer, it's really important to read a lot for a couple of reasons. The first is that when you read bad writing, you think, okay, I could do better than that. It's this like great confidence booster that pushes you into the arena. The second reason he says is you also want to read things that are so good that you think I'll never be able to do that. He says you need to be flattened by good writing. So I love this quote. You cannot hope to sweep someone else away by the force of your writing until it has been done to you. Jordan Peele was doing an interview once where he talked about seeing Second City shows when he was younger, and he says, it's so important to see the best. That's how you know how good it can be. That's why I encourage aspiring comedians to watch me. (laughs) Yeah. I did a show one time with a young comic. It was one of the first times that I'd ever headlined, and so I was looking forward to this opportunity to be like the, the big guy on stage. But it ended up being one of the worst shows I've ever done. Definitely the worst casino gig I've ever done. I was at, <laughs> Some casinos have like a, a room set aside for entertainment, but other ones don't. Other ones just sort of have an area roped off in a corner of the casino that's usually reserved for like dancing So they just had a few sort of scattered tables in front of this very tall stage, like nine, ten feet high, because it's meant for a DJ to be up there. And Mm. all this ambient noise is coming in from the casino. Every individual slot machine has its own theme song, but then when all of them are put together, it's just this sort of like... I I describe it as if brown were a sound, just because everything was coming at once. And there are maybe a dozen people sitting at all these different uh, seats that are too far away from me in the first place. I'm having a hard time hearing myself. I don't know how much of them, uh, how much of it that they're hearing. And by the way, like this is a free show. And the, the only people who are coming to a free comedy show in a casino are people who have lost everything. <laughs> So so a great crowd. Yeah. I think instead, a comedian in a casino, their job should be to heckle people who've just lost their retirement. <laughs> like you hang out by the craps table and just look for the saddest middle-aged man and then roast him. 
What are you trying to win another oxygen tank? <laughs> so nobody's laughing. And even if they are, I can't hear them because of all this other sound. So I'm just speaking into a void. And halfway through my set, one of these guys looks like an even fatter Santa. He lifts... <laughs> both hands into the air and he yells something and i said what like i've never asked a heckler <laughs> to clarify to cl- <laughs> please be more specific in your constructive so that he screams out i'm just waiting for something funny and i was like me too <laughs> I was contracted to 60 minutes. I had the stopwatch on my phone going on the stool. It's the only time I've ever, once it hit 60 minutes, I stopped mid-joke and said, (laughs) thank you, good night, Mike in the stand. And I definitely wasn't the hero of that other comic watching. Sure. I write every day and every like 15 minutes or so and I'm brainstorming or have, you know, writer's block. That guy just pops up on my shoulder like a little writer's <laughs> devil going, waiting I'm for just something waiting funny. for something funny. I love the idea that Santa was maybe there because he'd gotten in deep with bad people and he was trying <laughs> to win back his sleigh. <laughs> He lost all his reindeer. I could just see a, a, a moment in their kitchen where he's yelling at Mrs. Claus, I can make this right! <laughs> None of the elves are willing to tell him he has a problem. <laughs> Coming back to that idea that reading a lot shows you what is possible in your field, if you're not a writer, just a broad creative lesson is experience a lot in the medium in which you are creating. Maybe that's architecture if you're an architect or film or TV if you work in film or TV or whatever your creative endeavor is. There's this quote I love from Khaled Hosseini, this one again about writing, but it applies everywhere. He says, you've heard of chain smokers. Writers need to be chain readers, which I would point out that a lot of writers are both. (laughs) All right, lesson two. If you think you're a failure, don't necessarily believe it. Necessarily. So the story of Stephen writing Carrie is fascinating. So at the time, he's living paycheck to paycheck, working at a laundry. And in fact, one day in a load of clothes, he found an entire set of human teeth, which I don't want to be sacrilegious, but you know how when Jesus got baptized, like a dove came down and that's how everyone knew he was the one. I think the God of horror sent Stephen some teeth, (laughs) like you, you are the chosen one. When I consider complaining about my job, like what a bad day is for me. Mm, Him finding a full set of teeth. One time I noticed in my neighborhood a a dump truck drove by and I noticed that on the back of every dump truck, like community trash removal truck, they've got a fire extinguisher strapped to this side. (laughs) I think about that, like a bad day for me (laughs) is when... A joke bombs at a comedy club, and so I'm sad for a minute as I'm walking back to the hotel that they're paying for. But a bad day for the garbage man means that they're like, great, the trash is on fire again. (laughs) So he's in a bad place. He's living paycheck to paycheck. He started writing Carrie, and he thought it was no good, so he threw it away. And then his wife fished it out of the trash and told him, it's good, you should finish it. And he did. And it was his first book to sell. Um, Now, by that time, he's teaching. And he hoped that the book would get him $30,000. So as a teacher, $30,000 was what he would have made in four years, which luckily since then, it's gone up by a dollar. And then he gets the call. He gets the call. $400,000. First book he ever sold. It's the book that launched his career. And it all came from the story that he threw away at the beginning. So the takeaway for me is, 
even if you think your work is failing, don't necessarily believe it. So the lesson here is that you need to go back and pull that elf story out of the wastebasket. I cannot find the elf story, and I want to find it so bad. (laughs) When I think of that takeaway, history is kind of littered with these stories of people who had this huge impact, but who perceived themselves as failures. Like uh, Ignaz Semmelweis was the doctor who realized that when you wash your hands in between delivering babies, the mothers don't die as much. Oh, wow. And he told his colleagues like, hey, can you wash your hands? And they're like, LOL, no. And no one took him seriously at all. And they just kept killing their patients until he had this breakdown and he ended up dying in an insane asylum. And so he probably ended his life thinking he had failed because he'd had no impact on the way that medicine was conducted. Mm. And now, you know, we're a century and more down the road and his ideas have saved countless lives. Isn't it crazy that with like Van Gogh, who cut his ear off, or Hemingway, I feel like when writers and painters, musicians die an early death, they are lionized. You know, Mm. we give them even more credibility as tortured artists. But when it's a doctor, like for sure, when that when that guy died in an insane asylum, the the other doctors they were just like, yeah, see that Ignaz guy was just a banana. <laughs> yeah, we romanticize the mentally troubled artist much more than the mentally troubled doctor. <laughs> Our mentally troubled doctors create Frankenstein's. <laughs> All right, lesson three. Description begins in the writer's imagination, but should finish in the reader's. Uh, I hate to paraphrase Nicholas Sparks here, but I also didn't want to Google the exact quote because I didn't want Nicholas Sparks in my search history. He said something like, readers will choose a good story written clearly over a bad story written beautifully. Which is funny to me because I think that he (laughs) writes bad stories clearly. So Stephen King, when he's talking about description, he warns beginning writers against over-describing things, like give readers the benefit of the doubt. Our minds just want to fill in the space. Guarantee, like, you've never read a book and at one point thought, like, yeah, but what color is this dude's hair? (laughs) And that's why when we watch movies that are based on books, you're like, that's not what that guy looks like. Even though in the book, they may have never even been described, your brain just automatically wants to put an image there. Mm. Stephen King's advice is whether you're describing a small room or a massive landscape, two to three details at the most is all you need. His rule of thumb is to, as far as which details to include, are the first couple that come to mind. And so I'm going to do a little exercise with you. I'm, I'm okay. going to I'm going to narrow it down to just one detail. I'm describing a kitchen. I've already written out a, a, a list of what this kitchen looks like, but I'm just going to give you one of the details, and I want to see if any of my other details coincide with ones that come come to you. Whatever okay. is triggered in your mind based off of this mm-hmm. one detail. So I'm going to give you turquoise appliances. Okay. My mind first goes to kind of like a 1950s style kitchen getup. So mm. I picture everything is just spick spock and clean. And there's like. Wait, spick spock? Spick spock, yeah. What's spock? What's spick spock? Spotlessly clean. <laughs> family table over in the corner with like four chairs. I picture like an apron hanging on a hook in the pantry. I picture a lot of name brand goods for foods that have just started to be manufactured right after World War II. 
<laughs> happy kids on the boxes of these new foods without any indication that they give you diabetes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's what I got. What do you have? <laughs> that's great. Well, I love it. So it's yeah, without me setting a time frame, all I said was turquoise appliances and the rest of the kitchen that I described is exactly in that era. So I had mm-hmm. yellow flowery wallpaper, like stamped wallpaper, a, a big round refrigerator door. Uh, mm. And as far as the things that matched, I also have an apron. Mine is a, it's a half apron hanging on a hook. And I also had a table. It's interesting you said a table with four chairs. Mine is a square table with spindly metal legs is how I described mm. that. On the table are a, a couple of simple candlesticks. The neat thing is that that you and I, with a single detail, an adjective and a noun, a plural noun, we both essentially came up with the same kitchen. The decor coincided, like everything matched. If we took everything from your kitchen and put it into my kitchen, everything would have a place. And so mm-hmm. that's what Stephen King is saying. When you're writing about your kitchen, you don't have to mention the wallpaper, the apron, the appliances, the fridge, the table. Just pick one of those things, whichever you think is going to trigger the rest, and you put that down and you you continue to move the story forward. Because I think that's the other mistake that beginning writers have is that it's very fun to describe things because it's easier. It's easier than moving a plot point forward if you're just sitting there sort of self-indulgently describing this using metaphor and and simile. But what you're doing is is you're pausing pausing everything. To me, the board game Clue is like the darkest board game for children. Not just because of the weapons, like, but, but because like a few of them are obvious the you know the wrench the revolver the rope but the candlestick to me is like the most violent like you know what you would have to do <laughs> with a stick of wax like you can't just poke someone in the chest with it like that's some horrible th- that has to go into other horrible places likely like an orifice. in their face wait i yeah i thought it's i thought the candlestick is the holder like the big metal thing and like you're bludgeoning the person with that oh so i'm the one making it so much worse. yeah you're taking it <laughs> i do i do love the idea of super dark clue where all of your weapons are just incredibly macabre super like it's dark clue. in the conservatory with your bare hands <laughs> with 30 years of smoking <laughs> Also, how plausible is it that you can't just look at the body and know what the murder weapon was? (laughs) That's a good point. He has a single hole through his forehead. (laughs) Perhaps the wrench. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson four. TV really is about the last thing an aspiring writer needs. Stephen King. Also TB. (laughs) If you're just starting out at writing, airborne diseases can be tempting. (laughs) I'm waiting for the Grammarly ad that's like, do you write in your day-to-day work? Do you suffer from multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis? (laughs) Grammarly can help. (laughs) I'm a little convinced Grammarly is a money laundering operation because it hits me with ads all the time and I've never met anyone who uses it. It's like Arby's. (laughs) Like, do you know anyone who goes to Arby's and yet there are Arby's everywhere? They have to be money laundering for the mob. I've never heard anyone say, hey, I'm going on an Arby's run. You want anything? (laughs) Right. I don't even know what they have. They know the answer. (laughs) I once read this list that had logos 
that had secret meanings, but I just think that the logos aren't clear in the first place because what <laughs> what marketing strategy is that? Like, is Dan Brown involved with advertising? <laughs> so like Amazon, the Amazon arrow, apparently it points, it goes from the A in Amazon A to, to, Z. to the Z. And like, I didn't know that until I read this thing. They have ev- the everything store. Yeah, but it's not clear, but I refuse to believe that they did that on purpose. Like, no one's going to know what this means. <laughs> Arby's, apparently, it's it's like they're saying the letters R and B for roast beef. Oh. So, Stephen King, speaking of TV as a distraction, he says, Reading takes time, and the glass teat takes too much of it. <laughs> speaking of dark clue, it was... <laughs> Professor Plum in the dining room with the glass teat. (laughs) All right, lesson five. Go back and cut out the boring parts. So this is a tip that he says, you know, on the surface, it seems really obvious. But once you do it, it's actually really valuable. So he even has this formula. He says, second draft equals first draft minus 10%. That whole notion of making your writing just more efficient and faster, I think there's so much power in that. There's this quote from Hemingway where he says, if you're writing about something that you know well, and if you're writing truly, you can cut things that you know, and the reader will still feel those things as strongly as if you had said them. And he says, the dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one eighth of it being above water. Yeah, I love that. And Victor Hugo would say, icebergs need to be on land because the entire thing matters. (laughs) Like 17 pages of Les Miserables that just describe the Parisian sewer system. I remember there's like three or four chapters that just talk about one of Napoleon's battles. Napoleon is not a character in Les Miserables. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently the quote unabridged version of Les Miserables is actually the abridged version. He just went back and added all this extra historical stuff that had no bearing on the plot, like the Napoleon chapters. I think he wanted us to experience in real time 19 years in prison. (laughs) All right, just to recap. Number one, if you think you're a failure, don't necessarily believe it. Number two, description should start in the writer's mind and end in the reader's. Number three, read a lot. Number four, TV is the last thing an aspiring writer needs. Number five, go back and cut out the boring parts. And if you want to learn more writing tips from Stephen King, check out On Writing by Stephen King. Well said, Dave. That was Spick Spock. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this episode of our weekly podcast. If you liked it, click the subscribe button. If you didn't, you could subscribe anyway and just not listen to it. 